Section 2 of Dogmatic Theology, Soteriology, by William G. T. Shedd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vicarious Atonement, Part 1 The atonement of Christ is represented in Scripture as vicarious. The satisfaction of justice intended and accomplished by it is for others, not for himself. This is abundantly taught in Scripture. Matthew 20.28 The Son of Man came to give his life a ransom for unti many. Matthew 10.45 This is my body which is given for unti you. In these two passages the preposition anti indisputably denotes substitution. Passages like Matthew 2.22 Archelaus reigned in the room anti of his father Herod. Matthew 5.38 An eye for an eye. Luke 11.11 11, Will he, for a fish, give him a serpent? Prove this. In the majority of the passages, however, which speak of Christ's sufferings and death, the preposition uper is employed. Luke twenty-two nineteen and 20. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for uper you. John six fifty-one. The bread that I will give is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. John 15.13 Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5.6-8 Christ died for the ungodly, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8.32 He delivered him up for us all. 2 Corinthians 5.14-15 If one died for all, then all died. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him to be sin for us. Galatians 3.13, being made a curse for us. Ephesians 5.2 and 25, Christ gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. 1 Timothy 2.5 and 6, the man Christ Jesus gave himself a ransom for all. Hebrews 2.9, Christ tasted death for every man. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered the just for the unjust. The preposition uper, like the English preposition for, has two significations. It may denote advantage or benefit, or it may mean substitution. The mother dies for her child, and Pythias dies for Damon. The sense of for in these two propositions must be determined by the context and the different circumstances in each instance. Christ, John 15.13, lays down the proposition, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for, uper, his friends. The preposition uper here may mean either for the benefit of or instead of. In either case, the laying down of life would be the highest proof of affection. The idea of substitution, therefore, cannot be excluded by the mere fact that the preposition uper is employed, because it has two meanings. In 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21, uper is indisputably put for anti. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, Uper Christo, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, Uper Emon. In Philemon 13, Uper is clearly equivalent to Anti. Whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead, Uper Su, he might have ministered unto me. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, it is said that the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, uper panton, then all died, pantes apethanon. Here the notion of substitution is plain. 
if Christ died in the room and place of the all, then the all are reckoned to have died. The vicarious atonement of Christ is regarded as the personal atonement of the believer. It would be nonsense to say that if one died for the benefit of all, then all died. There is also abundant proof from classical usage that uper may be used in the sense of anti. Magi quotes the following. Xenophon relates that the Thracian prince Suthus asked Apisthenes if he would be willing to die instead of the young lad who had been captured in war. The same use of uper is seen in Xenophon's Hellenica and De Venatione, also in Plato's Symposium, 180 and 207, and also in the Alcestis of Euripides. 446, 540, 732, compared with 155, 156, 698, 706, 715 to 717. In the first three lines, anti is employed, and in the remainder, uper, in respect to the same subject, showing that classical usage allows of their being interchanged. Demosthenes says, Eroteson tutus, malone ego. Wiener remarks that uper is sometimes nearly equivalent to anti, instead of, loco. See especially Euripides, Alcestis, 700, Thucydides, 1, 141, Polybius, 3, 67, Philemon, 13. De Wetter on Romans 5, 7 says, uper kann anstatt heißen, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Bauer says, wenn auch in vielen Stellen das Apathanin über nur ein Sterben zum Bestehen anderer ist, so kann doch wohl in den Stellen Römer 4, 25, Galater 1, 4, Römer 8, 3, 1. Korinther 15, 3, 2. Korinther 5, 14 der Begriff der Stellvertretung wenigstens der Sache nach nicht zurückgewiesen werden. The meaning therefore of über must be determined by the context since both classical and New Testament usages permit of its being employed to signify either benefit or substitution, it is plain that it cannot be confined to either signification. It would be as erroneous to assert that it uniformly means for the advantage of, as to assert that it uniformly means in the place of. The remark of Magi is just. The word for, or the Greek words anti, uper, dia, peri, of which it is the translation, admitting of different senses may of course be differently applied according to the nature of the subject, and yet the doctrine remain unchanged. Thus it might be proper to say that Christ suffered instead of us, antiemon, although it would be absurd to say that he suffered instead of our offences, antiton amartematonemon. It is sufficient if the different applications of the word carry a consistent meaning to die instead of us and to die on account of our offences, perfectly agree. But this change of the expression necessarily arises from the change of the subject, and accordingly the same difficulty will be found to attach to the exposition proposed by these writers, Sykes and H. Taylor, since the word for, interpreted on account of, i.e. for the benefit of, cannot be applied in the same sense in all the texts. For although dying for our benefit is perfectly intelligible, dying for the benefit of our offences is no less absurd than dying instead of our offences. In light of these facts, it is easy to see why the New Testament writers employ uper so often, rather than anti, to denote the relation of Christ's death to man's salvation. 
The latter preposition excludes the idea of benefit or advantage, and specifies only the idea of substitution. The former may include both ideas. Whenever, therefore, the sacred writer would express both together and at once, he selects the preposition uper. In so doing, he teaches both that Christ died in the sinner's place and for the sinner's benefit. Vicariousness implies substitution. A vicar is a person deputed to perform the function of another. In the case under consideration, the particular function to be performed is that of atoning for sin by suffering. Man, the transgressor, is the party who owes the atonement and who ought to discharge the office of an atoner. But Jesus Christ is the party who actually discharges the office and makes the atonement in his stead. The idea of vicariousness or substitution is therefore vital to a correct theory of Christ's priestly office. Man, the transgressor, would make his own atonement if he should suffer the penalty affixed to transgression. So far as the penalty is concerned, retributive justice would be satisfied if the whole human race were punished forever. And if God had no attribute but retributive justice, this would have been the course that he would have taken. A deity, strictly and simply just, but destitute of compassion for the guilty, would have inflicted the penalty of the violated law upon the transgressor. He would not have allowed of a substituted satisfaction of justice, and still less would he have provided one. It is important to notice this fact because it shows the senselessness of a common objection to the doctrine of vicarious atonement, namely, that it is incompatible with mercy. If God, it is asked, insists upon satisfying justice by allowing his Son to suffer in the place of sinners, where is his mercy? The ready answer is that it is mercy to the criminal to permit the substitution of penalty, and still more to provide the substitute after the permission. If God had no compassionate feeling towards the sinner, he would compel the sinner himself to satisfy the demands of the law which he had transgressed. But in permitting, and still more in providing a substitute to make that satisfaction which man is under obligation to make for himself, God manifests the greatest and strangest mercy that can be conceived of. For the vicarious atonement of Christ is the sovereign and the judge, putting himself in the place of the criminal. It is important at this point to mark the difference between personal and vicarious atonement. A. Personal atonement is made by the offending party. Vicarious atonement is made by the offended party. The former is made by the sinner, the latter is made by God. Our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, Titus 2.13. If a citizen pays the fine appointed by the civil law, he satisfies justice for his own civil transgression. If the murderer is executed, he atones for his own crime before the human law, though not before the divine. And when a sinner suffers endless punishment, he personally satisfies eternal justice for his sin. b. Personal atonement is given by the criminal, not received by him, but vicarious atonement is received by the criminal, not given by him. This is indicated in the scripture phraseology. In Romans 5.11 it is said that the believer receives the atonement vicariously made for him by Christ. If he had made an atonement for himself, he would have given to justice the atonement, not received it. c. Personal atonement is incompatible with mercy, but vicarious atonement is the highest form of mercy. When the sinner satisfies the law by his own eternal death, he experiences justice without mercy, but when God satisfies the law for him, he experiences mercy in the wonderful form of God's self-sacrifice. d. Personal atonement is incompatible with the eternal life of the sinner, but vicarious atonement obtains eternal life for him. When the sinner suffers the penalty due to his transgression, he is lost forever, but when God incarnate suffers the penalty for him, he is saved forever. 
Vicarious atonement in the Christian system is made by the offended party. God is the party against whom sin is committed, and he is the party who atones for its commission. Vicarious atonement, consequently, is the highest conceivable exhibition of the attribute of mercy. Herein is love that God sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10 For God to remit penalty without inflicting suffering upon God incarnate would be infinitely less compassion than to remit it through such infliction. In one case there is no self-sacrifice in the Godhead, in the other there is. The pardon in one case is inexpensive and cheap, in the other costly and difficult of execution. The Socinian objection that vicarious atonement is unmerciful because it involves the full and strict satisfaction of justice has no force from a Trinitarian point of view. It is valid only from a Unitarian point of view. If the Son of God who suffers in the sinner's stead is not God but a creature, then of course God makes no self-sacrifice in saving man through vicarious atonement. In this case, it is not God the offended party who makes the atonement. The Trinitarian holds that the Son of God is true and very God, and that when he voluntarily becomes the sinner's substitute for atoning purposes, it is very God himself who satisfies God's justice. The penalty is not inflicted upon a mere creature whom God made from nothing, and who is one of countless millions, but it is inflicted upon the incarnate Creator himself. The following extract from Channing illustrates this misconception. Unitarianism will not listen for a moment to the common errors by which this bright attribute of mercy is obscured. It will not hear of a vindictive wrath of God which must be quenched by blood, or of a justice which binds his mercy with an iron chain until its demands are satisfied to the full. It will not hear that God needs any foreign influence to awaken his mercy. The finger must be placed upon this word foreign. The Trinitarian does not concede that the influence of Jesus Christ upon God's justice is an influence foreign to God. The propitiating and reconciling influence of Jesus Christ, according to the Trinitarian, emanates from the depths of the Godhead. This suffering is the suffering of one of the divine persons incarnate. God is not propitiated, 1 John 2, 2, 4, 10, by another being when he is propitiated by the only begotten Son. The term foreign in the above extract is properly applicable only upon the Unitarian theory that the Son of God is not God, but a being like man or angel alien to the divine essence. This fallacy is still more apparent in the following illustration from the same writer. Suppose that a creditor, through compassion to certain debtors, should persuade a benevolent and opulent man to pay in their stead. Would not the debtors see a greater mercy and feel a weightier obligation if they were to receive a free gratuitous release? Here the creditor and debtors substitute are entirely different parties. The creditor himself makes not the slightest self-sacrifice in the transaction because he and the substitute are not one being but two. Consequently, the sacrifice involved in the payment of the debt is confined wholly to the substitute. The creditor has no share in it. But if the creditor and the substitute were one and the same being, then the pecuniary loss incurred by the vicarious payment of the debt would be a common loss. Upon the Unitarian theory, God the Father and Jesus Christ are two beings as different from each other as two individual men. If this be the fact, then indeed vicarious atonement implies no mercy in God the Father. The mercy would lie wholly in Jesus Christ, because the self-sacrifice would be wholly in him. But if the Trinitarian theory is the truth, and God the Father and Jesus Christ are two persons of one substance, being and glory, then the self-sacrifice that is made by Jesus Christ is not confined to him alone, but is a real self-sacrifice both on the part of God the Father and also of the entire Trinity. This is taught in Scripture. 
God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, John 3.16. He spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, Romans 8.32. The triune God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Though it was God the Son, and not God the Father, who became incarnate and suffered and died, it by no means follows that the first person of the Trinity made no self-sacrifice in this humiliation and crucifixion of the incarnate second person. He gave up the agony and death, his dear and beloved son. He passed the sword, as Zechariah 13.7 says, through the man who was his fellow. Such scriptures imply that the redemption of sinful man caused God the Father a species of sorrow, the sorrow of bruising and putting to grief, Isaiah 53.10, the son of his love, the son who is in the bosom of the Father, John 1.18. The self-sacrifice, therefore, that is made by the Son in giving him to die for sinners, involves a self-sacrifice made by the Father in surrendering the Son for this purpose. No person of the Godhead, even when he works officially, works exclusively of the others. The unity of being and nature between Father and Son makes the act of self-sacrifice in the salvation of man common to both. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, I and my Father are one, John fourteen nine ten thirty. The mediator, says Augustine, was both the offerer and the offering, and he was also one with him to whom the offering was made. See South, Sermon 30. And this does not conflict with the doctrine that the divine essence is incapable of suffering. The divine impassibility means that the divine nature cannot be caused to suffer from any external cause. Nothing in the created universe can make God feel pain or misery. But it does not follow that God cannot himself do an act which he feels to be a sacrifice of feeling and affection, and insofar an inward suffering. When God gave up to humiliation and death his only begotten Son, he was not utterly indifferent and unaffected by the act. It was as truly a sacrifice for the Father to surrender the beloved Son as it was for the Son to surrender himself. The Scriptures so represent the matter. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, God spared not his own son, but freely gave him up. When the father, in the phrase of the prophet, awoke the sword against the man who was his fellow, he likewise pierced himself. Vicarious atonement, unlike personal atonement, cannot be made by a creature. Psalm 49.7 None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. Micah 6.7 Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Matthew 16.26 What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? This is acknowledged in the province of human law. No provision is made in human legislation for the substitution of penalty. In the case of capital punishment, one citizen may not be substituted for another. In the case of civil penalty, such a fine or imprisonment, the state cannot seize upon an innocent person and compel him to suffer for the guilty. And even if there should be a willingness upon the part of the innocent to suffer for the guilty, legislation makes no provision for the substitution. The state would refuse to hang an innocent man, however willing and urgent he might be, to take the place of the murderer. The state will not fine or imprison any but the real culprit. The reason for this is twofold. First, each citizen owes duties towards man that could not be performed if he should assume the obligations of another citizen. There are debts to the family, to society, and to the commonwealth, of which these would be defrauded, if the life or property of one person should be substituted for that of another. Secondly, each individual owes duties towards God, which would be interfered with by the substitution of one man for another within the sphere of human relations.
and the state has no right to legislate in a manner that interferes with God's claims upon his creatures. The instances in pagan or Christian communities in which there seems to be substitution of penalty are exceptional and irregular. They are not recognized as legitimate by pagan authorities, still less by Christian jurists. When, as in the early Roman history, an individual citizen was allowed to devote himself to death for the welfare of the state, this was an impulse of the popular feeling. It was not regularly provided for and legitimated by the national legislature. It was no part of the legal code, and human sacrifices among savage nations cannot be regarded as parts of the common law of nations. That vicarious atonement cannot be made by a created being within the province of divine law will be made evident when we come to consider the nature of Christ's substituted work. At this point it is sufficient to observe that, if within the lower sphere of human crimes and penalties one man cannot suffer for another, it would be still more impossible in the higher sphere of man's relations to God. No crime against man is of so deep a guilt as is sin against God, and if the former cannot be expiated by a human substitute, still less can the latter be. It should be remembered, however, that the reason why a creature cannot be substituted for a creature for purposes of atonement is not that substitution of penalty is inadmissible, but that the creature is not a proper subject to be substituted for the reasons above mentioned. Substitution is sometimes allowed within the province of commercial law. One man may pay the pecuniary debt of another, if this can be done without infraction of any rights of other parties. If, however, it cannot be, then vicarious payment is inadmissible. A man would not be permitted to take money due to one person to pay the debt of another. A man is not allowed in the state of New York to leave all his property to benevolent purposes if he has a family dependent upon him. The priestly office of Christ cannot be understood without a clear and accurate conception of the nature of atonement. The idea and meaning of atonement is conveyed in the following statements in Leviticus 6, 2-7 and 4, 13-20. Footnote. It was in China that a Baptist missionary found his converts slow to appreciate the value of Christ's atoning blood until the book of Leviticus threw light upon the sacrificial offering and showed the relation between shedding of blood and remission. Bible Society's Record, November 21, 1878. End of footnote. If a soul sin and commit a trespass against the Lord... He shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord, a ram without blemish, and the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord, and it shall be forgiven him. This is individual atonement for individual transgression. If the whole congregation of Israel sin and are guilty, then the congregation shall offer a young bullock for the sin, and the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands upon the head of the bullock, and the bullock shall be killed, and the priest shall make an atonement for them, and it shall be forgiven them. This is national atonement for national transgression. Two particulars are to be noticed in this account. A. The essence of the atonement is in the suffering. The atoning bullock or ram must bleed, agonize, and die. And he who offers it must not get any enjoyment out of it. It must be a loss to him, and so far forth a suffering for him. He must not eat any of the trespass offering. The sin offering must be wholly burnt, skin, flesh, and dung. Leviticus 16.27 in harmony with this, our Lord lays stress upon his own suffering as the essential element in his atonement. The Son of Man must suffer many things, Luke 9.22, Matthew 16.21, et alia. It behoved Christ to suffer, Acts 3.18, Luke 24.26. Christ refused the anodyne of wine mingled with gall that would have deadened his pain, Matthew 27.34. Footnote. Bear, in his 
Symbolic des Mosaischen Kultus denies that there is anything piacular in the Levitical sin offering. The slain victim is emblematic of self-consecration and self-sacrifice, not of penal satisfaction. The death of the lamb or goat teaches not that the offerer deserves to die for his past transgression, but that he ought to live for future consecration to obedience. This interpretation lies under all the moral theories of the atonement. Its inconsistency is apparent in making the shedding of blood or death the symbol of life. End of footnote. B. The forgiveness is the non-infliction of suffering upon the transgressor. If the substituted victim suffers, then the criminal shall be released from suffering. In these and similar passages, the Hebrew word kfar, which in the PL is translated to make an atonement, literally signifies to cover over so as not to be seen. And the Hebrew word salach, translated to forgive, has for its primary idea that of lightness lifting up, perhaps to be at rest or peace. Genesios in voce. The connection of ideas in the Hebrew text appears then to be this. The suffering of the substituted bullock or ram has the effect to cover over the guilt of the real criminal and make it invisible to the eye of God the holy. This same thought is conveyed in Psalm 51.19, Blot out my transgressions, hide thy face from my sins. In Isaiah 38.17, Thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. In Micah 7.19, Thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. When this covering over is done, the conscience of the transgressor is at rest. These Hebrew words, however, are translated in the Septuagint by Greek words which introduce different ideas from covering and resting. The word kfar is rendered by exilaskome, which means to propitiate or appease, and the word salach is translated by afiemi, to release or let go. The connection of ideas in the Greek translation appears therefore to be this, by the suffering of the sinner's atoning substitute, the divine wrath at sin is propitiated, and as a consequence of this propitiation, the punishment due to sin is released, or not inflicted upon the transgressor. This release or non-infliction of penalty is forgiveness in the biblical representation. This is conceded by the opponents of the evangelical system. Says Wegschreider, Venia sive condonatio peccatorum ex vulgari et biblica descendi consuetudin est abolitio buene peccatis contractea et restitutio benevolentiae divine erga peccatorem. In the Lord's Prayer, the petition to forgiveness is afes eminta ofilemata emon. Matthew 6.12 Christ assures the paralytic that his sins are forgiven in the words afeonte su e amartie su. Matthew 9.2 The preaching of the gospel is the preaching of the release of sins. Aphesis amartion. Acts 13.38 It is highly important to notice that in the biblical representation, the forgiveness is inseparably connected with the atonement and the remission, with the propitiation. The former stands to the latter in the relation of effect to cause. The scriptures know nothing of forgiveness or remission of penalty in isolation. It always has a foregoing cause or reason. It is because the priest has offered the ram that the individual transgression is forgiven, that is not punished in the person of the individual. It is because the priest has offered the bullock upon whose head the elders have laid their hands that the national sin is forgiven, that is not visited upon the nation. Without this vicarious shedding of blood, there would be no remission or release of penalty, Hebrews 9.22. Not until the transgression has been covered over by a sacrifice can there be peace in the conscience of the transgressor. 
Not until the Holy One has been propitiated by an atonement can the penalty be released. Neither of these effects can exist without the antecedent cause. The Bible knows nothing of the remission of punishment arbitrarily, that is, without a ground or reason. Penal suffering in Scripture is released, or not inflicted upon the guilty, because it has been endured by a substitute. If penalty were remitted by sovereignty merely, without any judicial ground or reason whatever, if it were inflicted neither upon the sinner nor his substitute, this would be the abolition of penalty, not the remission of it. According to the biblical view, the divine mercy is seen more in the cause than in the effect, more in the atonement for sin than in the remission of sin, more in expiation than in forgiveness, more in the vicarious infliction than in the personal non-infliction. After the foundation has been laid for the release of penalty, it is easy to release it. When a sufficient reason has been established why sin should be pardoned, it is easy to pardon. It is the first step that costs. This is taught by St. Paul in Romans 5.10. If, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The greater includes the less. If God's mercy is great enough to move him to make a vicarious atonement for man's sin, it is certainly great enough to move him to secure the consequences of such an act. If God's compassion is great enough to induce him to lay man's punishment upon his own son, it is surely great enough to induce him not to lay it upon the believer. If God so loves the world as to atone vicariously for its sin, he certainly so loves it as to remit its sin. In looking, therefore, for the inmost seat and centre of the divine compassion, we should seek it rather in the work of atonement than in the act of forgiveness, rather in the cause than in the effect. That covenant transaction in the depths of the Trinity, in which God the Father commissioned and gave up the only begotten as a piacular oblation for man's sin, and in which the only begotten voluntarily accepted the commission, is a greater proof and manifestation of the divine pity than that other and subsequent transaction in the depths of a believer's soul, in which God says, Son, be of good cheer, thy sin is forgiven thee. The latter transaction is easy enough, after the former has occurred. But the former transaction cost the infinite and adorable trinity an effort, and a sacrifice that is inconceivable and unutterable. This is the mystery which the angels desire to look into. That a just God should release from penalty after an ample atonement has been made is easy to understand and believe, but that he should himself make the atonement is the wonder and the mystery. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. 1 John 3.16 It follows from this discussion that atonement is objective in its essential nature. An atonement makes its primary impression upon the party to whom it is made, not upon the party by whom it is made. When a man does a wrong to a fellow man and renders satisfaction for the wrong, this satisfaction is intended to influence the object, not the subject, to produce an effect upon the man who has suffered the wrong, not the man who did the wrong. Subjective atonement is a contradiction. Atoning to oneself is like lifting oneself. Footnote. If it be objected that in the statement of the doctrine of vicarious atonement it is maintained that God atones to God, the reply is that Jesus Christ does not make satisfaction to himself as Jesus Christ, but to the Trinity. The incarnate word satisfies the justice of the Godhead. The relation of his death is therefore objective. It has reference to the divine nature, not to his own theanthropic personality. End footnote. The objective nature of atonement is wrought into the very phraseology of Scripture, as the analysis of the biblical terms just made clearly shows. To cover sin is to cover it from the sight of God, not of the sinner. To propitiate is to propitiate God, not man. 
The Septuagint idea of propitiation, rather than the Hebrew idea of covering over, is prominent in the New Testament, and consequently passed into the soteriology of the primitive church, and from this into both the Romish and the Protestant soteriology. The difference between the two is not essential, since both terms are objective, but there is a difference. The Hebrew term kfar denotes that the sacrificial victim produces an effect upon sin. It covers it up. But the corresponding Septuagint term, elaskome, denotes that the sacrificial victim produces an effect upon God. It propitiates his holy displeasure. When St. John, 1 John 2, 2 and 4.10, asserts that Jesus Christ the righteous is the propitiation, ilasmos, for our sins, and that God sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the implication is that the divine nature is capable of being conciliated by some propitiating act. This propitiating act under the old dispensation was, typically and provisionally, the offering of a lamb or goat, as emblematic of the future offering of the Lamb of God. And under the new dispensation it is the actual offering of the body of Jesus Christ, who takes the sinner's place and performs for him the propitiating and reconciling act. The objective nature of atonement appears, again, in the New Testament term katalare and the verb katalasin. These two words occur nine times in the New Testament with reference to Christ's atoning work. Romans 5, 10, 11, and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 20. In the authorized version, katalare is translated atonement in Romans 5, 11, but in the other instances, reconciliation or reconcile are the terms employed. The verb katalasin primarily signifies to pay the exchange or difference, and secondarily to conciliate or appease. The following, from Athenaeus, brings to view both meanings of the word. Why do we say that a tetradrachma katalatete, when we never speak of its getting into a passion? A coin is exchanged in the primary signification, and a man is reconciled in the secondary. Two parties in a bargain settle their difference or are reconciled by one paying the exchange or balance to the other. In like manner, two parties at enmity settle their difference, or are reconciled by one making a satisfaction to the other. In each instance, the transaction is called in Greek, katalare. The same usage is found in the Anglo-Saxon language. The Saxon bot, from which comes the modern boot, denotes first a compensation paid to the offended party by the offender, then secondly, the reconciling effect produced by such compensation, and lastly, it signifies the state of mind which prompted the boot or compensation, namely repentance itself. Bosworth, Anglo-Saxon Dictionary, Subvoce. The term reconciliation is objective in its signification. Reconciliation terminates upon the object, not upon the subject. The offender reconciles not himself, but the person whom he has offended, by undergoing some loss, and thereby making amends. This is clearly taught in Matthew 5.24. First be reconciled to thy brother. Here, the brother who has done the injury is the one who is to make up the difference. He is to propitiate or reconcile his brother to himself by a compensation of some kind. Reconciliation here does not denote a process in the mind of the offender, but of the offended. The meaning is not first conciliate thine own displeasure towards thy brother, but first conciliate thy brother's displeasure towards thee. In the Episcopalian order for the Holy Communion, it is said, If ye shall perceive your offences to be such as are not only against God, but also against your neighbours, then ye shall reconcile yourselves unto them, being ready to make restitution and satisfaction according to the uttermost of your powers for all injuries and wrongs done by you to any other. 
the biblical phraseology be reconciled to thy brother agrees with that of common life in describing reconciliation from the side of the offending party rather than of the offended we say of the settlement of a rebellion that the subjects are reconciled to their sovereign rather than that the sovereign is reconciled to the subjects though the latter is more strictly accurate because it is the sovereign who is reconciled by a satisfaction made to him by the subjects who have rebelled in romans five ten believers are said to be reconciled to god by the death of his son here the reconciliation is described from the side of the offending party. Man is said to be reconciled. Yet this does not mean the subjective reconciliation of the sinner toward God, but the objective reconciliation of God towards the sinner. For the preceding verse speaks of God as being from whose wrath the believer is saved by the death of Christ. This shows that the reconciliation effected by Christ's atoning death is that of the divine anger against sin. Upon this text, Maya remarks that the death of Christ does not remove the wrath of man towards God, but it removes God's displeasure towards man. Similarly, Devetta remarks that the reconciliation must mean the removal of the wrath of God. It is that reconciliation of God to man, which not only here, but in Romans 3.25, 2 Corinthians 5.18 and 19, Colossians 1.21, Ephesians 2.16, is referred to the atoning death of Christ. The priestly work of Christ is also represented in Scripture under the figure of a price or ransom. This also is an objective term. The price is paid by the subject to the object. Matthew twenty twenty eight. The Son of Man is come to give his life a ransom. Lutron for anti many. Acts twenty twenty eight. The Church of God which he hath purchased, peri epuseta, with his own blood. Romans three twenty four. The redemption apolutrosis that is in jesus christ 1 corinthians six twenty ye are bought ego rastete with a price galatians three thirteen christ hath redeemed ex rasen us from the curse ephesians one seven colossians one fourteen redemption through his blood one timothy two six who gave himself a ransom antilutron for all the allusion in the figure is sometimes to the payment of a debt and sometimes to the liberation of a captive. In either case, it is not Satan but God who holds the claim. Man has not transgressed against Satan but against God. The debt that requires cancelling is due to a divine attribute, not to the rebel archangel. The ransom that must be paid is for the purpose of delivering that sinner from the demands of justice, not of the devil. Satan cannot acquire or establish legal claims upon any being whatever. Some of the early fathers misinterpreted this doctrine of a ransom and introduced a vitiating element into the patristic soteriology, which, however, was soon eliminated and has never reappeared. They explain certain texts which refer to sanctification as referring to justification. In 2 Timothy 2.26, sinful men are said to be taken captive by the devil at his will. In 1 Timothy 1.20, Hymenaeus and Alexander are delivered unto Satan. In 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, St. Paul commands the church to deliver over the incestuous member to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In these passages, reference is had to the power which Satan has over the creature who has voluntarily subjected himself to him. The sinner is Satan's captive upon the principle mentioned by Christ in John 8.34, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant thulos of sin. And by St. Paul in Romans 6.16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants, thulus, to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. There is in these passages no reference to any legal or rightful claim which the devil has over the transgressor. 
but only to the strong and tyrannical grasp which he has upon him. This captivity to Satan is related to the work of the Holy Spirit more than to the atoning efficacy of Christ's blood, and deliverance from it makes a part of the work of sanctification rather than of justification. This deliverance is preceded by another. In the order of nature, it is not until man has been first redeemed by the atoning blood from the claims of justice that he is redeemed by the indwelling spirit from the captivity and bondage of sin and Satan. When, therefore, the efficacy of Christ's death is represented as the payment of a ransom price, the same objective reference to Christ's work is intended as in the previous instances of propitiation and reconciliation. By Christ's death, man is ransomed from the righteous claims of another being than himself, that being is not Satan, but God, the holy and just. These claims are vicariously met. God satisfies God's claims in man's place. God's mercy ransoms man from God's justice. We have thus seen from this examination of the scripture representations that Christ's priestly work has an objective reference, namely that it affects and influences the divine being. Christ's atonement covers sin from God's sight. It propitiates God's wrath against sin. It reconciles God's justice towards the sinner. It pays a ransom to God for the sinner. None of these acts terminate upon man the subject, but all terminate upon God the object. Christ does not cover sin from the sinner's sight. He does not propitiate the sinner's wrath. He does not reconcile the sinner to the sinner. He does not pay a ransom to the sinner. These acts are, each and all of them, outward and transitive in their aim and reference. They are directed toward the infinite, not the finite, toward the creator, not the creature. Whatever be the effect wrought by the vicarious death of the Son of God, it is wrought upon the divine nature. If it appeases, it appeases that nature. If it propitiates, it propitiates that nature. If it satisfies, it satisfies that nature. If it reconciles, it reconciles that nature. It is impossible to put any other interpretation upon the scripture ideas and representations. A merely subjective reference, which would find all the meaning of them within the soul of man, requires a forced and violent exegesis of scripture and a self-contradictory use of the word atonement. At the same time, Revelation plainly teaches that the author of this atoning influence and effect upon the divine being is the divine being itself. God propitiates, appeases, satisfies, and reconciles God. None of these are the acts of the creature. In all this work of propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption, God himself is the originating and active agent. He is therefore both active and passive, both agent and patient. God is the being who is angry at sin, and God is the being who propitiates this anger. God is the offended party, and he is the one who reconciles the offended party. It is divine justice that demands satisfaction, and it is the divine compassion that makes the satisfaction. God is the one who holds man in a righteous captivity, and he is the one who pays the ransom that frees him from it. God is the holy judge of man who requires satisfaction for sin, and God is the merciful father of man who provides it for him. This fact relieves the doctrine of vicarious atonement of all appearance of severity, and evinces it to be the height of mercy and compassion. If it were man and not God who provided the atonement, the case would be otherwise. This peculiarity of the case is taught in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, it is said that God hath reconciled us to himself, after his own self, by Jesus Christ, and that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, after. The statement is repeated in Colossians 1.20. It pleased the Father, through the blood of Christ's cross, to reconcile all things unto himself. 
According to this, in the work of vicarious atonement, God is both subject and object, active and passive. He exerts a propitiating influence when he makes this atonement, and he receives a propitiating influence when he accepts it. He performs an atoning work, and his own attribute of justice feels the effect of it. Says Augustine, the same one and true mediator reconciles us to God by the atoning sacrifice, remains one with God to whom he offers it, makes those one in himself for whom he offers it, and is himself both the offerer and the offering. Similarly, Frank remarks that freedom from guilt is possible for man because it has been provided for by God, and this provision rests upon a transaction of God with himself, whereby, as other, i.e. the son, he has made satisfaction to the claims of his own justice upon the sinner. This doctrine of Scripture has passed into the creeds and litanies of the Church. In the English litany there is the petition, From thy wrath and from everlasting damnation, good Lord, deliver us. Here the very same being who is displeased is asked to save from the displeasure. The very same holy God who is angry at sin is implored by the sinner to deliver him from the effects of this anger. And this is justified by the example of David who cries, Psalm 38.1, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. And by the words of God himself addressed to his people through the prophet Isaiah, 60 verse 10, In my wrath I smote thee, but in my favour have I had mercy upon thee. The prophet Hosea 6.1 says to the unfaithful church, Come, and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us, he hath smitten, and he will bind us up. In Zechariah 1.2-4, Jehovah is described as sore displeased, and yet at the same time as exhibiting clemency towards those with whom he is displeased. The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers, therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Also, Job 42, 7 and 8, The Lord said to Eliphaz, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. Therefore take unto you seven bullocks and seven rams, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering, lest I deal with you after your folly. Here the very same God who is displeased with Job's friends devises for them a method whereby they may avert the displeasure. Upon a larger scale, God is displeased with every sinful man, yet he himself provides a method whereby sinful man may avert this displeasure. This is eminently the case with the believer. When, says Calvin, the saints seem to themselves to feel most the anger of God, they still confide their complaints to him, and when there is no appearance of his hearing them, they still continue to call upon him. Says Anselm, Respira, o peccator, respira, ne desperes, Spera in eo quem times, a fuge ad eum aquo au fugisti, invoca importune quem superpe provocasti. The doctrine of vicarious atonement consequently implies that in God there exists simultaneously both wrath and compassion. In this fact is seen the infinite difference between divine and human anger. When God is displeased with the sinner, he compassionately desires that the sinner may escape the displeasure and invents a way of escaping it. But when man is displeased with his fellow man, he does not desire that his fellow man may escape the displeasure and devises no way of escape. The divine wrath issues from the constitutional and necessary antagonism between the divine holiness and moral evil. The divine compassion springs from the benevolent interest which God feels in the work of his hands. The compassion is founded in God's paternal relation to man. The wrath is founded in his judicial relation to him. God, as a creator and father, pities the sinner. As a judge, he is displeased with him. 
Wrath against sin must be both filled and manifested by God. Compassion towards the sinner must be felt, but may or may not be manifested by him. Justice is necessary in its exercise, but mercy is optional. The righteous feeling of wrath towards sin is immutable and eternal in God, but it may be propitiated by the gracious feeling of compassion towards the sinner, which is also immutable and eternal in God. God the Father of men may reconcile God the Judge of men. Whether this shall be done depends upon the sovereign pleasure of God. He is not obliged and necessitated to propitiate his own wrath for the sinner, as he is to punish sin, but he has mercifully determined to do this, and has done it by the atonement of Jesus Christ. By the method of vicarious substitution of penalty, God satisfies his own justice and reconciles his own displeasure towards the transgressor. That moral emotion in the divine essence, which, from the nature and necessity of the case, is incensed against sin, God himself placates by a self-sacrifice that inures to the benefit of the guilty creature. Here, the compassion and benevolent love of God propitiates the wrath and holy justice of God. The two feelings exist together in one and the same being. The propitiation is no oblation ab extra, no device of a third party or even of sinful man himself, to render God placable towards man. It is wholly ab intra, a self-oblation upon the part of the deity himself, in the exercise of his benevolence towards the guilty, by which to satisfy those constitutional imperatives of the divine nature, which without it must find their satisfaction in the personal punishment of the transgressor, or else be outraged by arbitrary omnipotence. Upon this point Augustine remarks, It is written, God commendeth his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us. He loved us, therefore, even when in the exercise of enmity towards him we were working iniquity. And yet it is said with perfect truth, Thou hatest, O Lord, all workers of iniquity. Wherefore, in a wonderful and divine manner, he both hated and loved us at the same time. He hated us as being different from what he had made us, but as our iniquity had not entirely destroyed his work in us, he could at the same time, in every one of us, hate what we had done and love what he had created. In every instance it is truly said of God, Thou hatest nothing which thou hast made, for never wouldst thou have made anything if thou hadst hated it. Calvin, after quoting the above from Augustine, remarks that God, who is the perfection of righteousness, cannot love iniquity, which he beholds in us all. We all, therefore, have in us that which deserves God's hatred. Wherefore, in respect to our corrupt nature and the consequent depravity of our lives, we are all really offensive to God, guilty in his sight and born to the damnation of hell. But because God is unwilling to lose that in us which is his own, he still finds something in us which his benevolence can love. For notwithstanding that we are sinners by our own fault, we are yet his creatures, though we have brought death upon ourselves, yet he had created us for life. Turretin distinguishes between compassion and reconciliation. Because God is compassionate on his own excellent and perfect nature, he can become reconciled towards a transgressor of his law. If he were inherently destitute of compassion, he would be incapable of reconciliation. Compassion is a feeling, reconciliation is an act resulting from it. The former is inherent and necessary, the latter is optional and sovereign. If God were not compassionate and placable, he could not be propitiated by the sacrifice of Christ. An implacable and merciless being could not be conciliated and would do nothing to effect a reconciliation. God is moved by a feeling of compassion and a benevolent affection towards sinners prior to and irrespective of the death of Christ. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 The death of Christ did not make God compassionate and merciful. He is always and eternally so. 
but God's justice is not reconciled to sinners unless Christ die for their sin, the compassion is prior in the order of nature to the death of Christ, the reconciliation of justice is subsequent to it. Before the death of Christ, God was actually compassionate and placable. This moved him to provide salvation and redemption for man, but he was actually reconciled and propitiated only upon the condition and supposition of that death of Christ which was required by eternal justice. In this manner, compassion and wrath coexist in God. To us, indeed, says Turretin, it seems difficult to conceive that the same person who is offended with us should also love us, because when any feeling takes possession of us we are apt to be wholly engrossed with it. Thus, if our anger is inflamed against any one, there is usually no room in us for favour towards him, and on the other hand, if we regard him with favour, there is often connected with it the most unrighteous indulgence. But if we could cast off the disorders of passion and clothe ourselves with the garments of righteousness, we might easily harmonise these writings with one another. A father offended with the viciousness of his son loves him as a son, yet is angry with him as being vicious. A judge in like manner may be angry and moved to punish, yet not the less on this account inclined by compassion to pardon the offender, if only someone would stand forth and satisfy the claims of justice for him. Why then should not God, who is most righteous and benevolent, at once by reason of his justice demand penalty, and by reason of his compassion provide satisfaction for us? Turretin quotes in proof of this view the following from Aquinas. Non dicimur reconciliati quasi teos de novo amare insiperet nam eterno amore dilexit, sed quia per hanc reconciliationem supplata est omnis odi causa, dum per ablutionem peccati, dum per recompensationem acceptabilioris boni. He also remarks that scholastici locuntor dilexit Deus humanem genus quantum ad naturam quam ipse fecit, odit quantum ad culpam quam hominis contracerunt. In all that is said, consequently, respecting the wrath of God in Christian theology, it is of the utmost importance to keep in view the fact that this wrath is compatible with benevolence and compassion. This is the infinite difference in kind between divine and human anger. At the very moment when God is displeased, he is capable of devising kind things for the object of his displeasure. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And at the very instant when guilty man is conscious that the divine wrath is resting upon him, he may address his supplication for a blessing to the very being who is angry with his sin, and may pray, From thy wrath, good Lord, deliver me. And the great and ample warrant and encouragement for men to do this is found in the sacrifice of the Son of God. For in and by this atoning oblation, the divine compassion conciliates the divine wrath against sin. In the death of the God-man, righteousness and peace, justice and mercy kiss each other. Psalm 85.10 The mercy vicariously satisfies the justice, the divine compassion in the sinner's stead receives upon itself the stroke of the divine wrath. God the Father smites God the Son in the transgressor's place. Awake, O sword, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 13.7 Footnote. The same principle applies to the afflictions of life. The strength and comfort must come from the very same being who afflicts. God is the source of affliction, and he is the God of all comfort. God wounds, and God heals the wound. See Pascal's letter to his brother-in-law on the death of his own father. The same truth is expressed in the lines of George Herbert. Ah, my dear angry Lord, since thou dost love, yet strike, cast down, yet help afford, sure I will do the like. I will complain, yet praise, I will bewail, approve, and all my sour sweet days I will lament and love.
End footnote. This subject is elucidated still further by noticing the difference between the holy wrath of God and the wicked wrath of man. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. James 1.20 When man is angry at man, this feeling is absolutely incompatible with the feeling of compassion and benevolent love. Selfish human anger and benevolence cannot be simultaneous. They cannot possibly coexist. When a man, under the impulse of sinful displeasure, says to his brother man, Raka, or thou fool, Matthew 5.22, when he feels passionate and selfish wrath, he cannot devise good things for his brother man. On the contrary, he devises only evil things. He plots his neighbor's destruction. The wrath of the human heart is not only incompatible with benevolence, but is often intensely malignant. It is even increased by the moral excellence that is in the object of it. Holiness in a fellow creature sometimes makes wicked human anger hotter and more deadly. The Jews gnashed their teeth in rage at the meekness and innocence of Christ. The hatred of the wicked, says Rousseau, is only roused the more from the impossibility of finding any just grounds on which it can rest. And the very consciousness of their own injustice is only a grievance the more against him who is the object of it. Oderint quem laeserint, says Tacitus. This kind of wrath requires complete eradication before compassion can exist. Better it were, says Luther, that God should be angry with us than that we be angry with God, for he can soon be at an union with us again because he is merciful, but when we are angry with him, then the case is not to be helped. Still further elucidation of the subject is found in the resemblance there is between the holy wrath of God and the righteous anger of the human conscience. The sinful feeling of passionate anger to which we have just alluded is an emotion of the heart, but the righteous feeling of dispassionate anger to which we now allude is in the conscience. This is a different faculty from the heart. Its temper towards sin is unselfish and impartial, like the wrath of God and this feeling can exist simultaneously with that of benevolence. When a man's own conscience is displacent and remorseful over his own sin, there is no malice towards the man himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, Ephesians 5.29. At the very moment when a just and righteous man's conscience is offended and incensed at the wickedness of a fellow man, he can and often does devise good things towards him. The most self-sacrificing philanthropists are those whose conscience is the most sensitive towards the moral evil which they endeavor to remove, and whose moral displeasure against sin is the most vivid and emphatic. It is not the sentimental Rousseau but the righteous Calvin who would willingly lay down his life if thereby he could save men from eternal retribution. The conscience of Rousseau was dull and torpid compared with the keen and energetic conscience of Calvin, but the desire of the latter for the spiritual and eternal welfare of sinful men was a thousand times greater than that of the former, supposing that there was in Rousseau any desire at all for the spiritual and eternal welfare of man. When St. Paul says respecting Alexander the coppersmith, the Lord reward him according to his works, 2 Timothy 4.14, he gives expression to the righteous displeasure of a pure conscience towards one who was opposing the gospel of Christ and the progress of God's kingdom in the earth. It was not any personal injury to the apostle that awakened the desire for the divine retribution in the case, but a zeal for the glory of God and the welfare of man. Could St. Paul, by any self-sacrifice on his part, have produced repentance and reformation in Alexander, he would gladly have made it. As in the instance of his unbelieving Jewish kindred, he would have been willing to be accursed from Christ for this purpose, Romans 9.3. But when a profane man angrily says to his fellow man, God damn you, 
this is the malignant utterance of the selfish passion of the human heart, and is incompatible with any benevolent feeling. End of section 2